0: If you would go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter nine, we'll be in verses fourteen through seventeen this morning as we continue to make progress through this incredible gospel. It's been a real blessing to me to both study it. I pray that there's been blessing just in being in the text. The title of this morning's message is a question. The account, you'll see it in just a few moments, is pretty straightforward. But there's quite a bit of mystery, so it seems, in the way that Christ answers this fairly direct question that His disciples are, or not His disciples, but John's disciples are coming to Him with. In fact, the whole idea of questions, you know, has evoked a lot in preparing for the message this week. Right off the bat, I was thinking of the, the phrase I've heard, I don't know how many times just growing up in school, you know, the only bad question is the one you don't ask, or there are no stupid questions. Um, Some would say there's no stupid questions, just stupid answers, Um, whatever the case is. You know, and and we don't really know where it began. Actually, uh, Carl Sagan's given actually a lot of credit for the there are no stupid questions in promoting the the beauty and the value of just the pursuit of, of knowledge. Of course, from his angle, that would not be necessarily something that would be admirable. There's also an ancient Chinese proverb that has similar type of, um, things set around it as far as, you know, you may ask basically a foolish question and only look like a fool for about five minutes, but if you don't ask a question, you may look like a fool for a lifetime, you know, wow, that's great. Um, but you know, for me, um, it stays about as lofty as, um, really bad questions that reporters ask on the sidelines, um. One of the favorite pastimes of my dad and I when we're watching sporting events is to, you know, I want to say lovingly mock, but that's really not a, probably a good adverbal use of the word love, but, um, pretty much just mock stupid questions that are asked of, of coaches and athletes. And, and I found some of these for you today just to benefit you, to bless you on this morning. Um, uh, you know, Media Day has been a source of this for many, many years. Way back in the day when, uh, Joe Montana was, the quarterback for the 49ers, and a reporter asked him. Now, keep in mind, uh, some of you may not get the context, I understand that, but many of you will. A reporter asked Joe Montana of the San Francisco 49ers, Why do they call you Boomer? He says, Well, they don't. They call Boomer Assias in that, and he's the quarterback for the Cincinnati Bengals, who they were playing that particular year. A later year, um, Tennessee Titans uh, defensive tackle Joe. Salovey, he was asked by a reporter on media day, what's your relationship with the football? His answer was, I'd say it's platonic. (laughs) These guys aren't dummies. That's good. Harkening back to, unfortunately, I have to go back to the early, uh, early 90s to harken back to the Cowboy Days, uh, Emmett Smith was asked by downtown Julie Brown going into their Super Bowl, what are you going to wear to the game on Sunday? <laughs> Stupidity is not just marked for distant history. Even in this last year's media day at the Super Bowl, Pete Carroll was asked this question. Consider the context. Before the Super Bowl, do you consider this to be a must-win game? At the same event, the line, uh, Bobby Wagner, who was Seahawks linebacker, he was asked about basically what was the worst question that he was asked. And a reporter actually asked him, what do you do when you're on the sideline you have to go to the bathroom? Astronauts, I get that, but there are actually systems that they could explain on all that. But nonetheless, it's what happens. Greg Popovich, who is one of my favorite coaches of all time in the NBA, he is famous for his sideline uh, non-banter, um, especially those awkwardly forced interviews between quarters or as coaches are going off the court during halftime. It seems like the worst time. Who has to sign the contract to answer that question? But he actually was dealing with this question because he realizes that he's a jerk to reporters. Um, I just thought it was good that he would admit this. He says, I know, I'm a jerk. I'm going to go ahead and admit it publicly to the whole world. Tell me what to do. What should I do? The quarter ends. You just got outscored by 12 points. They had eight offensive rebounds. So the question will be, that you just got out-rebounded by X amount, so what are you going to do about it? I don't know. Am I going to make a trade during the timeout? I don't know. Am I going to do some drills, just stop the game for a while so we can get better at it? I don't know. I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to go back to the bench and hope we play better. I don't know how to answer, so sue me for being stupid and not having the answers to the questions. The host chimes in and says, by the way, keep doing that because it's really entertaining. He says, it entertains everyone but my wife. He says, when I get home, she says, You are so mean. You are such a jerk. People hate you. He says, I'm sorry. I'll have to do better next time. And just so that he knows, this is one thing I like about Popovich. He is a truth teller. And he says, Just so you know, I'm not exaggerating. She would say, Do you see that guy? Do you see him? And he says, Yes, I see him. All I have to do is see him. And that's how you know why that I answer the way that I do. He, ans- he asks stupid questions, he wears stupid clothes. She says, that's no excuse. You're a grown man. Show some maturity. I said, I can't. I can't do it. (laughs) Look, answering questions or asking questions, you know, surely we can say there's no dumb questions, no stupid questions. Um, If you've taught any length of time at all, it it does sound, sound stupid ish if you ask a question that you just got through answering. Totally get that. You know, a lot of times Christ is answering questions that have not been asked directly of him. People have been asking among themselves. And Christ knows their heart. He knows their thoughts. He knows what they're thinking, whether through superhearing and their whispers or just because He's God and knows their hearts. He knows exactly what's going on. And He ends up answering their questions that they did not come directly to Him and ask. In our account today, we actually have disciples coming straight to Him. These are disciples of John the Baptist. They're coming directly to Christ and asking a very honest and good question. It's not a stupid question, nor is the way they approach Christ stupid. They go to Jesus and they ask the question. He doesn't make them feel like fools. He doesn't treat them. He doesn't act like a jerk. And because they're not asking this question that he just wants to slap them upside the head and say, don't you get it yet? These were disciples of John the Baptist. These weren't scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. These were guys that had been trained to look for the newcomer. Now, by this time, John was already imprisoned. And so his disciples are flailing about just a bit, but most of them had begun to linger on the outskirts of following Christ. And every once in a while, they interject and ask these questions. They want to know. And particularly, this question is about fasting. Now, I don't know about you, and again, this would go back to, there's a thousand questions you might want to ask an athlete going into the Super Bowl besides what he's going to wear or how does he go to the bathroom when he's on the sidelines you know, the disciples to come to Christ and for Matthew to record a question about fasting? I mean, I can think, I mean, I, I don't know, maybe you've talked about that before. What What are you going to ask Christ on that day? Or of all those eternal days, what are the questions you're going to ask? I would dare say that most of you are not going to say, you know what, fasting is at the top of the list. It's not even at most of our... Uh, this disciplines lists, even on it, much less near the top of things that we do. We don't even inquire as to why, because it's just not something that we practice. Now, even for the disciples of John, they were Jews. The only prescribed, commanded fast was on the Day of Atonement. However, there were other practices for fasting that had been instituted by the Pharisees and other religious leaders. and Not all of them were bad. They were Many of them were meant for good reasons and purposes. But clearly, in light of what was going on in the situation, basically, we don't, this probably wasn't going on during the Day of Atonement, but whatever it was, these other prescribed fasts, they were being observed by the Pharisees and by even the disciples of John. But it was glaring and noticeable that Christ and His disciples were not fasting at all. And so they want to know why. And actually, when you see the text... They're asking one question, but with two parts. Let's look at it now. Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. Then, it's a common word that Matthew uses to continue the action, to keep it moving. The disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? There's part number one. But your disciples do not fast. There's part number two. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins... And so both are preserved. So what in the world does fasting, a wedding, patchwork, wine and wineskins, what does that have to do? And how do those things have to do with one thing? Will they actually do. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would give us wisdom, discernment, insight into your word today, because This is in holy writ. It is for us to understand more of the nature of Christ and more of the nature of our redemption and more of the nature of what it means to be a disciple, to follow you. So I pray, Lord, that you would help me to get out of the way and let your text just show forth. And I pray, too, that you would help us to um, be willing to be taught, to come to you inquiring, because that's a good thing. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Jeremiah 10 verse 21 says, For the shepherds are stupid and do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore they have not prospered and all their flock is scattered. It's one of many very unpopular things Jeremiah was told to speak to the nation of Israel. The stupidity comes in for them is that they did not inquire directly of the Lord. In Psalm 27.4, any of you know this passage? One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. This verse isn't quoted in our text today, but I think there's a lot of overlapping themes. Because again, these disciples sought out Christ and inquired directly of the Lord. They saw fit to inquire directly of the Son of God to answer their questions. Because the one that can answer is able to answer. He's already shown authority over every other aspect of life. And now he can show authority over religious practices and other things to give clarity. But also what they're seeking is to be satisfied. They're inquiring about something, and only his answer is going to eventually satisfy them. That's why, for us, it seems a little difficult that the answer seems so cryptic. Why did he just say flat out? Well, let's look at that question in verse fourteen. The disciples of John they come to him and they ask this twofold question: Why do we and the Pharisees fast? So, in a sense, they're asking about their Their own reasons. He says, but your disciples do not fast. So what's the reason that you don't fast while we have reasons, maybe we're not sure of them, that we do fast? And maybe in that question is backloaded with, if you did fast, why would you? We don't know a lot of that speculation. We don't even know really the tone in which these guys come to them. So again, that would be speculation. Here's what we do know. They are disciples of John. So this word, disciples, methetes, is a word that we've talked about before. The methetes means that they are defined by the one whom they follow. That's why it means that when it says they are methetes of John, John defines them. John had already lived a lifestyle of great asceticism, not in pursuit of righteousness, meaning he didn't do with less. He didn't you know, wear uh, animal skins and eat locusts and honey just so he could earn God's favor. God had told him to go out into the wilderness to be this voice to say, here comes the Lord. He's coming. And in doing so, there were others that followed him so that he could point them also to the Christ that was to come. But in the course of all this, he had taught them disciplines and practices. In fact, it looked like the disciples were not all that unhappy about hanging out with Christ. And yet the disciples of John were not necessarily marked by this over-exceeding sense of joy. Not that they weren't joyful But they were very serious and sober-minded in looking forward to the Messiah. And some of this just seemed to be a disconnect. So their question is, essentially, what are we missing here? We're practicing something that the forerunner who's pointing us to you says to practice, but you guys are not practicing these things. What you'll notice when Christ eventually gives the answer, he doesn't deal at all with the first part. Why are we fasting? He doesn't deal with that. He only answers, in a sense, the second part, which is, why don't you guys fast? That's the real question, because that's the real answer that Christ gives. So, we could only speculate as to the reasons why the disciples and the Pharisees were fasting at this point in time. It would not be necessary for us actually to speculate on it, because Christ doesn't answer that, so we're not going to answer that. We're going to deal with what Christ answers. Now, Why do I even point that out? I point that out because this is part of the beauty of exposition. Exposition is you want the meaning and the message of the text to be the meaning and the message of a sermon. That's what your soul needs. You don't need my personality. You don't need um, other things inflicted into it. That's going to come through somewhat, but it's more intentionally obscured on my part on Sunday mornings. Because the value of this time and the text getting out in the forefront. And also, it doesn't make any sense for us to really speculate on that which Christ doesn't actually initiate in his answer. So we're going to focus on why they don't fast. Now, the then again denotes what's immediately following. It could be that these guys are stemming off of the previous criticisms. Because Christ was already being criticized now, disciples of John, don't get me wrong, they're not necessarily jumping on the bandwagon, but they could be asking, they could be disrupted enough to come to him and ask a direct question. We know there's something better about it because they weren't just mingling amongst themselves like the scribes and the Pharisees did, grumbling, and then Christ interjects. They come directly to Christ. So there's a real honesty in this pursuit. And that's to be admired. Whatever the case is, here's what we know. Fasting was only prescribed by the law during the Day of Atonement. There were other fasts that were practiced in the New Testament. The only account of Christ ever fasting was during the temptation in the wilderness. That's the only time. Yes, he went up to the mountain and he spent time alone with the Lord. Surely there were times that he went on extended times without food. However, an intentional fast, the only account we have is during the temptation. That was on purpose, certainly, because that's where his total humanity in all of its weakness, as well as his total divinity and all of its strength is put beautifully on display. For our benefit, we needed Christ in all of his physical flesh frailty. And yet with his divinity without sin to experience the wilderness temptation like he did. Not just that he did. Because he went through it without sin in any way. We have to have a perfectly human and divine Christ in order to save us because God demands perfection. The law points out that we are not perfect. Christ has to be that perfection. So we needed him to do this even in an extended sense of frailty, which he did when he fasted while being tempted. Fasting had been seen as a practice that would draw people closer to God. And that's on different points of the scale. Some people would fast for the purpose of earning favor, literally hoping it would be another drop in the bucket for their own salvation. People continue this kind of fasting today. Earning favor, righteous kind of favor. Now, other people just do it because they do want to draw closer to the Lord. And that's, in general, the more appropriate sense. Not that we can actually gain salvation kind of favor with God but that we want to be near to Him. And one of the ways that we do that is by denying ourselves things that we keep so near to us and that when physically we come up against hunger, it launches us to think about a spiritual longing that we have. Now, I'll deal a little bit more with that a little bit later. So, it would be speculation as to ask why. Maybe they were in the middle of a fast and they were hungry and they were a little bit jealous they were at least confused. They wanted some clarity or they wouldn't have asked. What we know is that they come directly to Christ, they inquire directly of Christ, and that is exactly where we should go when we have questions that need answers. And here's what we need to remember. Just like we said last week, the source of authority is key. And this is why this is so beautiful as it connects with the previous text. We talked about, it's not just that we trust that Christ has the authority, but how has Christ... Spoken, He spoke directly to the apostles. What did the apostles do? The apostles recorded their witness of his testimony in the scriptures that we have today. So when you inquire of the Lord, do so with an open Bible. He has spoken to you authoritatively in the 66 books we have here. So do inquire of him, but don't just sit there without the text thinking that you may receive an answer because otherwise I'm fearful that the answer you may receive may not be consistent with that text. So let's dive right into how he answers the question. So here's where he goes. And Jesus said to them, very matter of factly, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, even the initial question, his initial response, it comes with it a rhetoric that includes an answer of impossibility. Basically, no, it's not possible that the wedding guests would be with in, in the middle of the wedding festivities and with a bridegroom on his wedding festival because their festivals would last seven days. My uh, reception lasted, I don't know, two or three hours at the most. Maybe not even that long. I mean, I felt like after like an hour is way too long. I just, uh, thank you. I mean, I, I've been like this my whole life, so, you know, however you chalk that up but i was very excited to marry jan but i was very i was just oh, just give me some advil had sent my best mind go give me some advil uh give me some punch um i was ready just to get out and just to be with jan and just to talk about wow that was crazy um what do what the next x number of years look like um and um but they would last seven days But here's what I want you to understand about the weight of what he's saying. The weight of what he's saying is, no, it's impossible. Why? Because the bridegroom is there. He says the bridegroom is there. He doesn't say as long as the festival's going on. Because there may be times that he takes a respite. But they're saying as long as you're in the presence of the bridegroom, clearly aligning himself with the bridegroom, is it possible to be in mourning? And the answer is clearly no. So pack that away because that's part of the really clear answer when it comes to Why don't you fast? Because Christ is really with him in presence. And it's impossible to have any sense of mourning or sober-mindedness or longing for anything else when Christ is actually there. Hang on to that. He conjoins the situation that they're asking the question... With the circumstance of a wedding to align both purpose and pleasure together. Meaning, what's the purpose of the bridegroom being there? He's there to be wedded. And what's the purpose of the guest being there? To celebrate with the bridegroom. Because as opposed to our culture, their culture actually put primacy on the bridegroom. Our culture puts it on the bride walking in. None of y'all stand up when the dude walks in. Just going, oh, it hey, looks good. Let's watch how awkward he looks until she walks in. Then everybody's standing and the great music begins. You know? It's, it's all about her. In their culture, it was all about him. And it would tie both the purpose of being with the bridegroom in celebration of a wedding with the wedding guests and what happens in that, which is pleasure, satisfaction, a happiness. He conjoins these things right off the bat in answering this question with his, with his imagery, which is what he does. It's about the real presence of the bridegroom. Anything less than feasting and joy would be an insult to both the purpose and the, and the meaning of the whole experience. To go to a wedding and be upset would be very selfish and would go against not just the grain but against every reason why you have such a celebration. You are there to rejoice in the bridegroom for them. These wedding guests were not enamored with just the occasion. They were enamored with the man. Their joy continued as long as he was there. That's what Christ says. As long as the bridegroom is with them. There's no room for longing for anything else. Basically, for the bridegroom to come back there's a timeliness involved here this timeliness has to do with at the perp- at the particular time most immediately what he's answering probably has mostly most is mostly related to the occasion of what he's talking about meaning the fast itself why do you not fast We don't fast because we have a wedding and a bridegroom and those two are together. And that seems a little more obvious to it. When we get to the other images, it seems to get a little murky. But at least here's what we know. We have to take all these together. Christ doesn't use these to confuse anyone. He uses them to paint a larger picture. He uses these images to paint a larger picture in answering the question. So first of all, we know that there's a wedding celebration going on. The bridegroom is there. While the bridegroom is there, the guests are celebrating and rejoicing. There is no room for mourning whatsoever. First strokes of the paintbrush of these images in answering the question. Hang on to that. Then he goes on to what would be a little more difficult interpretation. On the back end of it, he says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. Denoting that fasting kicks in when the bridegroom then goes away. Now, for the disciples of John, he is also painting the picture of I am the one that you've been looking for. There's a sense of if they join him, they will no longer fast. Now, they're not going to join him just so they can start eating again. But to see him as the one that they have always longed for in this, he is painting a picture of the everlasting intent, at least in time of fasting. It is always about longing for the presence of God. That is the purpose of fasting 100 percent of the time. Now, you may fast for an answer to a question, seeking the Lord's will and direction in your life. You may fast because there is sin that seems pervasive and you need to break those patterns. You may fast regularly just because you want to be reminded that you need self-control. Part of self-control is physical appetite. It's not just lust of the eyes, but also the lust of the flesh and even gluttony and just the love for food. But it's never by itself just to be done away with something for a short season. It's for the purpose of being reunited with the one who gives joy. Here's an example. Paul, for instance, says for a season, you can be apart from your spouse when it comes to sexual intimacy. But when you do so, do so only to pray. And even when you do that, do it only for a short time so that you will not be tempted to sin, but then you can reunite. It's a lesser, but still an image of what it means to fast from something to long for Christ to come. That's why when Christ finally does come, what are we having? We're having a wedding feast. The bridegroom comes. We meet him. We come back with him to celebrate and he establishes a feast. He doesn't say, "Okay, this is a serious time. Let's fast. No, the bridegroom has come. There's no more longing for something else. He is the all in all. So if you're fasting to break sin patterns... It's a very good indicator of what it means to biblically repent. Worldly sorrow says, I just don't want to feel guilt. So I want to feel satisfied that I fasted. That would like be me fasting when I did in college. And then at 12.01 a.m. Because we would reckon that when well, we started to fast before we went to sleep, we, we slept, we had eight hours of sleep. We fasted all day. And then at 12.01, we called Domino's and ate as much pizza as possible. Those are, I mean, true stories. You know, you just got the benefit from just having done without. But the real purpose overall wasn't really this passion to be restored to. That's what biblical repentance looks like. So if you're fasting to break the pattern of sin, it's not just breaking up a hiccup in the pattern. What you're wanting to do is actually be restored to the one whose fellowship was broken in that sin. You want to break it off, turn and then be united with him. That's what you want. If you're wanting to discipline your life, what are you doing? You have... whether it becomes food or other things, there's something about this world that is very appealing. And God has been good to give us this discipline that we can look upon this world and say, you know what, it is good and healthy for us to do without because as long as I don't do without, I'm going to continue to establish this world as a kingdom unto itself. Fasting is a way of causing us to hunger for something we're missing temporally, like food or media, social media or whatever. But the longing that we want to fill it with in this world for the Christian with the spirit indwelling launches us to long for Christ alone to fulfill what we're longing to be filled back in. you know good and well that at the end of it all, you being able to watch movies again or get back on social media is not going to give you lasting satisfaction. Even eating a good meal is not going to give you lasting satisfaction. All of that is to temporally point you to the eternal, which is Christ, His very real presence alone satisfies. There's a sense that the Lord's Supper reflects this. In a sense, when we come together and take the Lord's table, we're breaking a fast, okay, even if you had breakfast or whatever, but you're breaking a fast, so to speak, to come together to partake of something. But we do it as long as, as long as we are able to, as often as we are able to, win Until He returns. Because all the images of things that are, that are feeding us in the moment are reminding us of what He's done to secure for us satisfaction in Himself one day. Meaning, you have to admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and, o- and only come to the place where you realize that Christ alone satisfies all of your longing. And then banking on the alive Christ to satisfy everything that you would ever long for. Therefore, you're turning away from trusting and pursuing lesser things in this world, even if they're good and decent, to pursuing Him. Fasting reflects this, and Christ is even showing this in the middle of the answer to this question. I'm saying all that now because as we get into then the clothing and the patchwork and the preservation with the wine and wineskins imagery, we need to understand This idea of satisfaction, of pleasure and purpose being conjoined together. These images are clear. What they directly relate to is a little bit unclear. In general, here's what we know. We know that he is not saying that he is the new, the law itself entirely is the old, and he has come to replace that. The reason I say that is because back at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, do not think that I came to what, the law? Abolish, thank you. But I came to what? Fulfill it. Okay? This is why you have to keep context. This is a good Bible study practice for you. You have to keep context together, because why? Well, if he came to fulfill it, we even hear the language of filling there. It sounds like if you put Christ in the law then it will satisfy all the purpose of the law. And there's a sense that that is true. And yet he says, you can't pour new wine into old wineskins. So you can't just pour Jesus into that because the image that he uses is negative. So he says, I came to fulfill the law, not do away with it. You've got to be careful what the imagery represents. I think at the very least what we have is this. We need to conjoin a couple of things in these images. First of all, the purpose and the pleasure of something remains. This theme remains. Now, I know it's hard to think of pleasure when it comes to patching up a hole in your jeans. But I think you'll see it more so in the way that he speaks of the preservation of wine and wineskins. What we also know is that whatever new has come is not constrained by the old. And the old can often be their misunderstanding and misinterpretation of the old. So here's what I mean. What Christ has come in teaching about the law, the nature of the law, his fulfillment of the law, his satisfaction of God's righteous requirements for sinful men is not constrained by an old misunderstood view of, of the law as if the law itself ever could have saved a man. Never is it spoken of in scripture that you can add Jesus to a law that you keep and those two things will come together and will give you salvation. Do we not see this later on in the epistles when we see Paul, for instance, chiding the Galatians for adding belief in Christ to the keeping of the law? Who has bewitched you? This is not a different gospel. It's no gospel at all. We see it throughout the New Testament where the Judaizers were creeping in. Even in the oldest books written in the New Testament, like even at the end of Peter's life, these guys are coming in and they're adding these false teachers. You can read it through 1 Peter. They're coming in and mixing grace by faith alone in Christ alone with keeping certain practices like circumcision. The new that Christ has brought is not displacing the old, nor is it constrained by the old. Christ has come to bring clear, eternal definition to all that that God ever introduced in the old. And as it's literally being redefined before their eyes. Don't you see this with the Pharisees' questions along the way? How can you help an oxen? How can you heal a person on the Sabbath? They had always misunderstood the purpose. What did he say in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, you say if you kill a person, but I say if you hate your brother. He's always redefining, but not because it's necessarily new. It's because it's the old understood, from God's standpoint, right interpretation of the law. It's important for you to see this as we dive into these images. Patchwork. Covering. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth On an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. This makes sense. You've got an old cloth. It's going to have some holes. You don't put a new cloth that has been unworn and unshrunk, because if you do that, then what happens? Well, as it gets worn, as it gets washed, then it's going to eventually as it shrinks, it's going to tear away at already a pretty fragile piece of clothing. And the tear will be worse. It's pretty simple. It's very straightforward. Kind of hard to understand a little bit of what it means, but we can say this, that as Jesus has come, what He is bringing is not constrained by an old, worn-out view of the law. Jesus is not constrained by what they have defined. Jesus alone is sufficient, and when He explicates the law like He did in the Sermon on the Mount we understand then that the law does fall like a weight on the back of the neck of sinful men. It cannot be upheld. You cannot walk around keeping that law. Christ, however, has kept it all. And then once you have Christ, you are then able actually to keep that law. We don't do so perfectly in this world, but in the world to come, we will be perfect. We will see him like he is, for we will be like him. The new creation is sufficient in and of itself. Christ will clothe us with his righteousness. That righteousness is not defined by these men in the wrongful interpretations of my religious practice with what these things are that Christ is teaching. That will rip. That will tear over time what we see is that Christ is enough. All that Christ teaches about the law in the fulfillment of the law, all of who Christ is, is enough to clothe me. His righteousness alone, not a mix of my dead works and His gospel grace. Only all of Christ is enough. And His goodness is not constrained. By their wrongful historic interpretations. We can make, be made beautifully whole when we trust Christ alone to clothe us with Himself. There's no other mix, there's no other message. Then He gets into preservation. Again, okay, there's another brushstroke. Okay, so there's joy, there's no lack of mourning. When the bridegroom is near, but the bridegroom's going to go away. They didn't really get that right then, but that's what he's alluding to. Then there will be fasting. But as far as the purpose of fasting, he's starting to get here when he comes to these images. It's all focused on the bridegroom, totally focused on the bridegroom. Not a mix of new things with these old and the tearing away of the fabric of what it means to really be religious, so to speak, in the best way possible. Then he talks about preservation. Not just patchwork, but preservation. Look at the wine and the wineskins. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst. The wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. It's very, very simple. New wine is unfermented wine. It had not had time to become what it's supposed to become. Which is grape juice with a kick. The wine skins were, were made and fashioned in such a way so that they would contract and expand as the fermentation process is going on. And in the process, they would harden. If you were just to pour out the wine once it became good and then tried to reuse those wine skins with something that had not been fermented yet, the fermentation process would actually then cause those skins to crack. And then what happens? No wine, no wineskins. You thought you were being... Efficient, a good planner, recycling. But eventually what happened is it destroyed everything. And it destroyed the purpose for which the thing is even put in there, which is to sit and to become what it's supposed to become in the fermentation process. And then eventually what? Enjoyed. First miracle we see from Christ, water into wine, where? At a wedding feast. The wedding party does not have somber faces as long as the bridegroom is there. I'm not trying to attach that necessarily to wine, but it is interesting that he would use these images. I I think there is some possibility that all these images relate to one another a bit because people would have their clothing be at its best at these long feasts. They would certainly want to make sure that there is good wine in preparation for these feasts. So you could argue that, that all this is preparation for a wedding imagery. I don't think it's necessary, though, for us necessarily to put those things together to gain everything we should out of this text. Basically, there is no way to enjoy wine that hasn't fermented properly. And to ferment properly, it has to be put into its proper encasement. So again... You cannot pour Christ, so to speak, or the gospel of grace into the old thing as it was understood at the time and it holds together. What will happen? The thing will break and everything becomes impure. The fermentation process stops, it hits the ground, it's undrinkable the mixed message of these things does not work. He says, no, instead you have to pour the new wine into new wineskins and that has to contract and expand over time so that its ultimate purpose of enjoyment is had. Once again, the image is clearer than the application. But the idea is that what's being asserted here is that the new does not need to be constrained by these old things. I would at least say this much. What Christ brings with the gospel of grace and the means by which the gospel of grace is both communicated and experienced are tied together. Meaning you can't have good wine but not have good wineskins. You can't think that you have a right understanding of the law and yet the law does not actually support What Christ says, basically, if you get Christ wrong, you get God wrong. If you get God wrong and Christ wrong, or if you get the law wrong, as it's biblically understood, then you will not understand the gospel of grace. All of this fits together. Well, Christ said when he came and he's are doing the Lord's Supper and he's pouring wine. This is the cup of the new covenant, the new covenant that you would love one another. but he was doing it at Passover. He was keeping the law as it was commanded by Scripture. The Old Testament. So he wasn't there to recreate what was. He was there to rightly practice what God had established on behalf of those who would never, never be able to practice it like God had laid out. And how does that happen? It happens for us either in blatant sin or... In self-righteousness. Here's what I mean. The law says don't lust. Man, I can't keep that one, so I may just go live it up. Or some people actually think, well, I've been chased. I've never done anything really wrong. I think I'm okay. Self-righteousness. Both ways are misinterpretations of the law either by strict adherence to the outward expression, not giving any regard at all to the inner motivation, which Christ blew up at the Sermon on the Mount, or the person that just blatantly goes past what the Scriptures forbid when it comes to the commandments of God. But both ways are misinterpretations of the law. Christ is coming with the gospel of grace, and the gospel of grace is being poured into, in a sense, a new understanding of, But it is the old right understanding of the message and the purpose of the law and the keeping of it and the lack of ability to keep it to see again Christ, Christ, Christ. The whole purpose of this story and this account and even the whole purpose of fasting is to delight in all that Christ is and only is. There is no mixture of the gospel of grace And the keeping and doing of good works. It is only those who have been changed by grace who do good works, yes. But for you to think that you've got this and then you've got this, and as long as you believe in Jesus and then also keep your nose clean, those two things combined, you know, God is my co pilot stuff, meet Him halfway. God will do His part if you do your part. God helps those who help themselves. That's new and old wineskins. That is a mixture. That is a recipe for impurity, destruction, and you will never taste the pleasure of the presence of the bridegroom if you believe that it's a mixture of your belief in Jesus and your good works that will save you. It is only Christ that can save. There's just no other way. So the point of asking a question about fasting? Well, I think they genuinely wanted to understand the purpose of what they were doing as opposed to the purpose of why Christ wasn't doing this, neither were His disciples. Should we fast? Yes. But not as a command or a means of salvation. Fasting is commended to us to long for the bridegroom to return. That's what Christ is getting to in the answer to this question. It's impossible to mourn when I'm here. So don't, but I will be going away. Then you will fast. Things will get hard. You will long for me to come back. Eventually I will. Until then, it is good for your soul to fast break sin, to make decisions, just to discipline your body and your mind to just keep longing for something other than what this world can satisfy you with. As we increase our longing, then we start to attach things. Like what he says, but wine is put into fresh wineskins so that both are preserved. This is why you need the whole counsel of God brought to you because you will veer at some point left to yourself to mix up the purity of the wine, the gospel message, but you'll want to put it in some old wine skin the way that you think things should be done and you'll try to put Christ in there and you'll mix them up. And you know what comes out to the world? Something useless. But when the gospel of God revealed in the whole council of His Word. Old and New Testaments come together to paint us a beautiful picture of how He set this up before Christ came, when Christ came, and what He's promised even since Christ has left but will come again. As you see the whole picture, you start to then actually realize that what is then the real witness of the church? It is this longed-for pleasure of seeing the bridegroom again. There is nothing as winsome to the lost world as a church that is authentically and genuinely happy in Christ. See, this is why this doesn't this doesn't work with the prosperity gospel. Because why? Because they will say they're really happy with what God gives. But God's given them everything that the world wants already with or without Jesus. That makes them just as happy. But what is he so good to do? God is so good to Job, you sometimes. To take things away. To remind you that this world is not your kingdom. To send you far away. To remind you that this is not your home. Whatever the case is for you. You can know that only Christ will satisfy the longings of a true and proper and good church. Only Christ will satisfy. I think that's what Christ is pointing out in the answer to his questions in this way. He's showing the centrality and the sufficiency and the joy that comes from his presence. And what he's bringing to the table is, in a sense, it is very old, but it's not old like they understood old. It's old in the sense of how God always intended it. The outworking of the new covenant is Christ himself. Christ is not being added to this Judaism that had taken over so the question kind of comes down for you are you perfectly happy with Christ at a distance now I'm not going to hammer you and say have you fasted lately everybody respond today raise your hand let's all fast right after lunch but there is this sense of you know what are you putting into your life that are practices to remind you that are biblical practices that remind you of Christ alone is what I'm longing for And that doesn't mean, again, you have to be constrained because Christ already said, hey, you don't put on a sad face when you fast. You don't wear, you know, bad clothes. No, He says, tighten things up. Look sharp. Comb your hair if you got it. But don't look like you're fasting. And yet there is this longing for something else. It's a deep inner longing. But I will say this. If you're able to happily live in this world, And you're able to happily string together all your temporal joys with more temporal joys and never really long for Christ to come back? If you're able to perpetuate that, I think biblically speaking, you can pretty much rest assured you will never see Christ face to face except as your judge. God puts in the believer through the presence of the Holy Spirit a longing for Himself. Where is your longing this morning? Are you treating Jesus like He's just patchwork to your own way of doing things? Maybe you do come here this morning thinking that you're okay. You just need Jesus to kind of tweak you. You just need a little help. You're trying to put something new on something old. And it will tear and crumble and it will be of no use. You must come to realize this morning that your way of doing things actually just condemns you. You need Christ and Christ alone to save you. Not just to be patchwork, but to clothe you with His righteousness, to clothe you with Himself. Because He alone is perfect. You're not. You're a sinner. He alone has died, buried, been raised again. You, however, will not have to die spiritually if you trust that Christ died for you and rose again for you spiritually. But we all will die at least once. On that day, you will not be able to say Jesus was just a patch. You will have to say that Jesus is my all, my only. That's why I stand here. Christian, if you know that He alone can save you and has saved you, and you know that even though He is everywhere, He is not as present as he will be when he returns. But you know what? It still is a joy when we gather as God's people because it is with him that we gather. It's dim. It's a shadowy reflection right now. But there is joy in the longing of more to come. So Christian, look, we all have different personalities. I get that. And we all can be a little bit, you know, cynical here and there and pessimistic. I get that. I really do. But at the end of the day, to be without hope, to be without joy, if you're truly a believer, there's really no place for that lacking in your life. So I want you to dwell, as we sing in just a moment, on the bridegroom. If He's come for you and you believe that you're a believer... That you're a Christian, are you longing for his return? If you feel like that there hasn't been a pattern of longing, you know what? I encourage you to fast. Take a meal, take a day, take other things that you just so habitually do, like your phone, social media, whatever it is, break some patterns of being distracted by this world. To lift your head up as you pray. And long again for the bridegroom to come back, come back, come back. He will return. He will return. How will you be found then? God, I pray that you'd help us now. Help us to respond appropriately as those who would long to see the bridegroom return. Knowing that only you can satisfy. Lord, forgive us for for those of us who are truly believers for being too content with this world satisfying us. We've forgotten what it means to be part of the wedding feast and that our joy is derived by the presence of the bridegroom. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here who is trying to use the gospel message or the church or Jesus and whatever represents Jesus as just something to be added to To a fairly ethical life that they would realize that they're banking on their own goodness plus some knowledge to get them to heaven and you say that will not get anyone there it is only by trusting and resting that Christ has died for our sin having lived our requirements in our place because we couldn't but was raised from the dead Is alive today. May it be only, only Jesus for them, even now. Amen.